Today's reading is at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, written while he was in prison, helpless to meet and help the young church that he'd pastored, and it's a prayer for them. When I reread it this week, it reminded me that someone had once suggested that I use it as a guide to pray for a friend, inserting their name, because above all else, it cuts to the chase of what we all need most, for God to meet us in the deep places of our lives, in personal and impactful ways. Ephesians 1. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he called his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read about this little boy who was given strict instructions every day to come home at evening by five o'clock and he could go and play with his friends he could ride his bike to the park he could do whatever that he needed to do but you have to be home at five o'clock and uh, so he was always on time he didn't want to lose his privileges well one evening he didn't show up at five o'clock he was nearly an hour late and his mother met him at the door where have you been You know to be home by 5 o'clock, and here it is nearly 6 o'clock. And this little guy pointed out the window, and he said, But the light, the light always tells me when to go home. And then his mother realized what had happened. Daylight saving time had gone into effect. And time had sprung forward, and 5 was now 6. And so she apologized, and she took a clock, and explained to her son this process in the spring and fall of each year of how we reset our timepieces. And the boy thought about this for a long time and finally asked his mother, does God know that we're doing this sort of thing? (laughs) And I would like to answer that boy. I don't think he does. Uh... Because if he does know about this, there's no way that he can approve. This whole affair started way back in 1784. Benjamin Franklin was the first one to propose daylight saving time. No one paid him any attention. A century later, a New Zealander, Hudson, actually devised a plan much like we use today. Entomologist. Entomologist. He studied bugs. And he wanted more daylight hours to chase down insects. During World War I, Congress passed a daylight saving law to save some energy. Contrary to popular belief, it was not for farmers. The farmers hated the idea, saying that the sun, not the clock, dictated their days and their nights. But this law was largely ignored by the states. And finally, in more recent years, just in 1966, the Uniform Time Act became law, and we have been springing forward and falling back ever since. And I hate it. I say pick a horse and ride it. Just decide. 
And don't tell me about this extra hour of sleep stuff. I gave an hour up in the spring. I just broke even last night. And I really didn't break even because my dogs do not follow daylight savings time or standard time. I've been up since 4.30. And being this far east in the central time zone, we all know that it'll start getting dark about 2.30 now. Maybe we can all start praying to Saint Expeditus. I have a picture for him, of you, for him today. Who? Saint Expeditus. His name is Latin. The English equivalent is expedite. Saint Expedite. He's holding a cross in his hand with the Latin word today, now, in his hand. Move quickly. Be on time. Get chopping, St. Expeditus says. He is the patron saint of time and time management. Oh, you procrastinators, slow pokers, drag assers, and clock ignorers. (laughs) This is your man. Get on your knees and beg him for aid and mercy from heaven today. Expeditus was a Roman centurion in the late 3rd century, and he had made up his mind to become a Christian. And in those days, being an imperial army officer, it was a dangerous gambit. He could be expelled from the army for, for becoming a Christian, possibly executed. Becoming a Christian was considered an act of treason in the 3rd century. As the story goes, he was riding along on his horse, contemplating his decision when he met, of all things, a talking crow. That was amazing in and of itself. More amazing was this talking crow knew the decision at hand that Expeditus was considering. And the crow said, Expeditus, there's no need to be rash. You've got plenty of time. Just put this decision off for a later date. And Expeditus recognized that this talking crow wasn't just a talking crow, it was the devil himself, and he jumped off his horse and stomped the daylights out of it (laughs) and was baptized into the church. Expeditus, get it done. O St. Expeditus, we the slow, the slothful, we who put off for tomorrow what should be done today, we who have no respect for the ticking clock that marches with indifference, we who save nothing by the springing forward and falling backwards of our timepieces, help us to act with speed and purpose just as you did. Amen. (laughs) What? You just prayed to a saint? Are you Catholic? No, I am not Catholic. It's okay. Today is All Saints Sunday. You think this Halloween thing is all it's about? No. Halloween is hallowed eve before November 1st. On November 1st, for centuries, the church has celebrated All Saints, All Souls Day. And in churches around the world right now, even those who fell back and those who did not, all the saints are being remembered and honored and invoked, these people who went before us, our spiritual ancestors. They weren't perfect. But they prevailed, and they have lessons to teach us about our own lives and about our own journeys. If you are of a Catholic background, you will be much more familiar with the saints than we who were raised strictly Protestant or who were raised outside the Christian tradition altogether. There are more than 10,000 named saints in the Roman Catholic sources. About 2,000 of those are official 
To become a saint in that tradition, the Pope and the Curia investigates their life. They look closely for miracles and whatnot, and eventually the person, if they're counted worthy, will be pronounced venerable. And then if you move to the second tier, you're beatified. And if you move to the third tier, you're finally canonized. And the Vatican is quick to say, however, that the church doesn't make saints. God does. The vetting process is there only to verify what God has done. And once a person is canonized, proving that they are indeed worthy and are indeed with God in heaven, you can call upon them in your time of trouble, goes Catholic teaching. And again, the Vatican is quick to point out that we don't pray to the saints so much as we pray with them. The simplest explanation is you are calling on a friend, someone that you trust, someone who is close to God, someone who has been there where you are and asking them to join you in your time of trouble. Now, explain like that. I, I mean, all my Protestantism still prickles up, but I can get by with that. I love the variety. You know about Expeditus. Some of you know, and some of you should really get to know Expeditus, no names being called. And you know the heavy hitters, Valentine, Patrick, Nicholas, who's coming shortly, Francis. There are others. I've thought of some of you today. St. Columbanus. Uh, Kurt, he is the patron saint of motorcyclists, and I suggest that you begin to (laughs) wear maybe his necklace around your neck. St. Lawrence, anybody that works in a restaurant, he's your guy. St. Florian for firefighters. St. Joseph for realtors. Any realtor here ever told somebody selling their house to go bury uh, bury an icon in the yard? See? St. Catherine for you teachers. My wife should be praying with her every day. My wife sends me video of her classroom. And we would be homeless. I couldn't work at that. St. <laughs> Agatha for those with breast cancer. St. Anthony to help find lost items. St. Jude for lost causes. St. Isidore, the patron saint made recently of the internet. St. Drogo for coffee houses and coffee lovers. St. Vetus for those who oversleep. St. Hedwidge for bald people. St. Arnold for beer drinkers, St. Biblia for hangovers, and St. Monica for alcoholics. In that order. (laughs) Whatever you challenge, you find this patron saint who is on your side who understands, and that seems to be the point. It's the point of having all these saints, all these, these saint days. We remember what theologians call the church triumphant. Those who have gone before us and have entered into rest into the presence of Christ. They have run their race. They have finished their course. They have won. They are triumphant. And then a phrase that theologians use for we who are still here, the church militant. We are still engaged. We are still in the battle. We are still struggling sinners running the race that is set before us. So together you have the church that is conquered and the church that is still in the fray together makes the universal church of God. Saints above, and believe it or not, saints below. You are a saint. Has anybody ever told you that? 
<laughs> Garrett said, yeah, they told me. You are a saint. Look at what Paul says. Let's repeat the text. Beautiful text of which Anna introduced it absolutely perfectly. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. Remember that phrase, God's people everywhere. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. To the King James Version, an older version, verses 15 and 18. It's different. The wording is different. But note the word change. Verse 15. I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the who? May you know what the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So what modern translations call God's holy people, the oldest versions just simply use the word saints. God's people are saints. If you're striving to be a person of faith and to follow Christ, you are a sinner, but you're also a saint. There's no differentiation there. You belong to God. That makes you a person on His team. You're trying to stay on His side of things. You are a saint. Thomas Merton gave the best definition of what a saint is. A saint is not someone who is good. It is someone who has experienced the goodness of God. That's a saint. Saints are those who have come to know the deep, abiding, amazing grace of God. Saints are sinners who have come to understand and to receive God's love. That's why they are God's people. Not because they are perfect, but because they know they are not And they have received more than they deserve or could ever return. Maybe that is why the saints triumphant cheer us on as we are still in the battle. Because whatever the end of all things is, the end is grace and goodness and understanding. And they are already completely in God's grace and goodness and understanding. They have had the aha moment. As Philip Yancey says, when we get to heaven, the first response out of our lips will be, Oh, now I see. They're there. And having been where we are, they are pulling us forward to themselves. The writer of Hebrews called them a great cloud of witnesses. As if they are sitting in the bleachers watching us play the game that we are still in. I was in this little mountain church more than 25 years ago now. And it was a Sunday night, and I was the preacher, and I was there to practice. Not really, but everyone understood that that's what was going to happen. If you invite a young preacher who's still in school to come preach on Sunday night, he's, he's going to practice on you. I mean, Sunday morning, you expect, you know, we need a hit. Maybe not a home run, but at least a double in the gap, preacher. Come on, you know. <laughs> you got to do your thing. You get invited on Sunday night, eh, you know, smaller crowd, you know, kind of the faithful folks. So young preachers get to go to these churches and 
practice, B-team stuff on Sunday nights. And it's about helping the young person get some experience. Because the church knows, the people that are there know that this kid has studied his heart and his brains out all week, and he's going to get up here and tell us everything he knows in 12 minutes. And we're all going to get to go home early, and everybody is happy when it's over. So there I was, and I wasn't the only youngster in church that night. There was this little kid in the back, probably seven, eight, nine years old, and he was just being obnoxious. And... uh, Again, this is more than two decades ago, and this was the Appalachian Mountains, and these were hard shell, fire and brimstone Baptists for the most part. And there wasn't much time out in that culture when a child misbehaved. Is anybody picking up what I'm laying down? (laughs) You were taken out of service, and I don't mean like you're in maintenance, out of the service. And as my grandmother would say to us, when I get through with you, the seat of your britches won't hold shucks. I want you to think about that a minute. And if you don't know what that means, see me after service. Well, Mama in this service had finally had enough. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? And so there's a side door right here where this is. And I'm in the pulpit just starting my sermon. And this kid's been carrying on and screaming. And here, here she comes down the side of the aisle, dragging this kid out the side door. You know where he's going. He's about to get throttled. And I'm not, in, I don't, I'm not interested in getting into the corporal punishment debate with anybody. I'm just telling you that's how it was. And he's going out the side door. And he's going out the side door like this. You know? His mother's got him by the collar and the arm. And he goes out the side door. Right before he goes out the door, I swear, right before he goes out the side door, he turns and he looks at the crowd. And he says, pray, saints. (laughs) Two things. Number one. He meant it. He knew he was going to need some help. Two, without a doubt, he was parroting what he had heard in that little church growing up there. How many preachers, how many old men, old women given testimony about their lives had gotten up in that pulpit and addressed the people of God as the saints of God and asked for them, pray with me, pray for me, I'm in need. Well, that's exactly what a great lesson that was. I wanted to stop and say, kid, we've all been drug out of the side door of the church. I have. I don't know about you. And and we're with you. And we're sorry for you. And we know what it's like to be in trouble. And we know what it's like to be in trouble from our own making. We're going to pray for you. It's the perfect example. A saint is not someone who is good. It is someone who has experienced the goodness of God. Of God. Isn't that exactly what Paul prays for the Ephesians, for all of us to know? That slide, Garrett. I pray for you constantly asking God to do two things to give you spiritual wisdom and insight, and I pray that He will flood your hearts with light. And for what reason? 
so you will grow in your knowledge of God. And two, that you will understand the confident hope you have been given. You want to be a saint? You don't have to join a convent or take religious vows. You don't have to go to Libya as a missionary. You don't have to starve yourself to death in some remote corner of Asia while doing God's work. You might do those things. Such things are actually heroic, but those things are not the building materials of sainthood. Here it is. Pray this prayer. Anna, thank you for the introduction. Pray this prayer for yourself. Pray this prayer for those you love. Pray this prayer for your world. God, give me wisdom. Give me light. Because I need to know you and I need hope. God, for my spouse, give him, give her wisdom. Give him, give her light. Because they need to know you and they need hope. For your children, God, give them wisdom. Give them light. They need to know you and they need hope. God, for this world, give it wisdom. Give it light. Because God, this world needs to know you and this world needs hope. Living a hopeful life in a largely hopeless, godless world is about the most defiant and saintly thing you can do today. To realize that I am running my race and I'm doing what I can do And you know how I know I can make it? Because there's a lot of folks that ran this road ahead of me and they've made it. And they were made of the same stuff I am made of. And they are cheering me on just like I will cheer on those who are coming behind me. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what sainthood is about. I have repeated often the story of Vaclav Havel. He was a Czechoslovakian writer. He wrote plays, poems, essays, and he was an insurgent, a peaceful one, but a rebel nonetheless against his country's Soviet-backed communist government. For most of his life, he was blacklisted. He was often persecuted. He was not allowed to complete his education. He spent years at a time in jail as a political prisoner, but he kept writing, kept working, kept pushing his country toward what he called direct democracy, which was anti-consumerism, taking care of each other and our world, staying active neighbors in our community. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, his country made him president. No election. You're the guy. And immediately he called for elections. Too much power. They had an election. Guess who got elected president? He did. Czechoslovakia decided to divide peacefully along ethnic lines, creating the Czech Republic on one side and Slovakia on the other. Havel was again elected as the Czech, guiding that country through some of its days. And he was always upbeat, always dreaming of a better future. And someone asked him, how? 
You endured Nazi occupation as a young person. You endured Soviet invasion. You were repressed. You were imprisoned. You participated in the liberation of your people only for half your country to go off and create another nation. How do you remain such an optimist, they asked him. And he gave a mature answer. He said this, I am not an optimist, nor am I a pessimist, because I am not sure how everything will end. But I carry hope in my heart. Hope is not a feeling of certainty. Hope is the belief that life and work have meaning. And hope is as big a gift as life itself. If the triumphant saints anything to teach we striving saints and struggling sinners, it is that. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is not naivete. It is not lazy dreams without plans or a path to get there. Hope is the fuel that keeps us striving, that tells us day in and day out, surely to God in heaven, what I am a part of will actually mean something in the end. And that is living like a saint.